Our scripture reading this morning is Psalm chapter 2. I invite you to turn there with me in your Bible. Psalm chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And this is the word of the Lord. Well, there's certainly been a lot of talk about how 2020 has been a difficult year. And it has on a number of different levels. Not least of which, you know, it's been a very difficult last several months. Well, this summer we witnessed seemingly one protest after another, often leading to vandalism and even riots. Uh, On the nightly news, we would see videos and images of cities burning. We would see images of statues of some of our founding fathers spray-painted, indeed even toppled over. And then we come to the events of this past Wednesday, yet another protest. At this time, people breaking into our nation's capital, and we're left asking ourselves, how, how are we as Christians to think about these things? You could ask broader questions, couldn't you, that are related How are we as Christians to think about politics? How how should we think about the United States of America? How should we think about love for country? Love for a particular political party, dare I say it, love or lack thereof for a particular leader, a particular president, a particular governor. I, I do trust most of you understand that we could easily do an extended series trying to answer these and other related questions from a biblical perspective. And there's so much we could get into here, not least some of the many areas that we would be free as Christians to agree to disagree. Uh, We'll have to save that for another time. My purpose this morning is more simple, though certainly not unimportant. 
recognizing where my own heart has been over the course of these past several months, certainly this last week, my desire is to put before us a vital and biblical reminder, one I've had to give myself numerous times, one I even sat my family down and we kind of worked through together. The reminder is this, as Christians, we are citizens of two kingdoms. And no matter what happens around us, one of those two kingdoms will never, ever be shaken, no matter what things look like. And that is a huge stabilizer in troubled waters. Now, if you're not already there, turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. That's going to be our sermon text today. And I think there's a wonderful message here for us from this passage. Psalm chapter 2. I'm going to begin by rereading the first three verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, we're real tempted to read a text like this, especially in times like this, and our first inclination is to just jump right into application, right? To just impose our situation right onto this. You read, why are the nations raging? And you think, yeah, I saw pictures of this just this week. But in order to really understand what's going on here in Holy Scripture, we must do the hard work of starting with what the original author meant here, and how this text ultimately points us to Jesus, since Jesus himself taught us in places like the road to Emmaus that all of the Bible, all of the Old Testament ultimately pointed to him. We must do that hard work first before we jump into application. The psalmist, who according to Acts chapter 4 is none other than King David, begins by asking the question, why? Why do the nations rage? And right off the bat, it's clear that their rage and their plot is futile. David describes a scene where the people and their leaders are running around enraged, and they're plotting together to overthrow both the Lord and His anointed one. Now, let me just say the term anointed here is the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is what we get our English word Messiah from. And, and, and when that word's taken over into Greek, that's where you get the Greek word Christos, our word Christ. And this is one of those biblical words that actually has greater and greater meaning as God's plan of redemption continues to unfold. At the time of Psalm chapter 2, the word was used for the anointing of priests and kings right? You might think of when the prophet Samuel anointed King David. He poured oil over his head, and the oil flowed from his head down over his shoulders, over his back, and, and it was really, it's this picture of the Spirit of God indwelling, empowering that person to fulfill that office. So here, when David speaks of the Lord's anointed, he's speaking of the Lord's anointed king. He's speaking of the one that Yahweh set apart as king over Israel at that time. So here in this psalm, he's speaking of himself. Now, we will see as we work through this psalm 
that the Holy Spirit actually leads David to point well beyond himself to the great King David's greater son, the King of kings, the eternal Son of God, a point to which we'll return shortly. Here suffice it to say, the nations are raging. They've, they've always done that, and they're always going to do that. They're raging. They are plotting against Yahweh and His specially anointed King or the Messiah. And contextually, there isn't any one particular incident that's going on here. Again, this is something that you see the nations constantly doing. What's more, don't miss the fact that they were rejecting both the Lord Notice in most of your Bibles, that's all uppercase. That's Yahweh and His anointed, which makes sense for the, the raging of unregenerate, fallen man is always ultimately against God. Here we see that those raging are saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast off their cords from us. We don't want anyone over us. We are our own authority. The language in the first instance portrays the nations that are around Israel and the leaders of those nations trying to break free from their required allegiance to the Davidic king. They're, they're trying to throw off the yoke of David, if you will, but in so doing, whereas they thought they were simply rejecting David, they're also rejecting God Himself who had placed David on His throne. And this rejection of David as king and the Davidic kingly line by the nations is seen throughout the entire Old Testament. I mean, just read through the books of First and Second Samuel or First and Second Kings, where you see nation after nation rise up against Yahweh and his anointed king, kings of the like of David and Solomon, or Hezekiah, or Josiah. It's this ongoing, recurring cycle. And of course, this rejection of the Lord's anointed king reaches its fulfillment in the life of the Lord Jesus. You see this at the very beginning of Jesus' life. Now recall for a moment his birth. We just celebrated this in our Advent series. Remember, after Jesus is born… Jesus is the one the New Testament makes clear. He's the son of David, right? And after he's born, magi show up in Jerusalem, and they're looking for the one who is born what? King of the Jews. Well, Herod hears that, and what does he do? He rages, doesn't he? Just like Psalm 2. He raged against the Lord's Messiah. You see this in the wicked, wicked plot he hatches. He, he gathers the priests and the scribes, and he says, where's the Messiah to be born? They say Bethlehem. So he pulls the Magi aside. He says, hey, I want to see this guy too. I'd, I'd, I'd love to meet him. And go tell me where he is and come, you know, come back, and, and we'll work this out. And you know the story. The Magi don't come back. In God's sovereignty, he protects his young king. And thus, Herod's even more enraged, isn't he? And in what was an appalling fit of rage, Herod sends his soldiers to Jerusalem. And just, we, we read over these things, but he wipes out all the male children, two years old and under. I mean, this is beyond, like, ISIS kind of rage. The nations and their leaders hated Jesus from the very beginning, and thus 
this psalm points to and is fulfilled in Christ. And the early church understood this. They, they, they interpreted Jesus' crucifixion through the lenses of this very psalm. You don't have to turn there, but the words of Acts 4 are super helpful here. And they quote this psalm. In, in Acts 4, you read, When they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O oh Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage? And the peoples devised futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. We'll come back to that. He's the anointed one. Whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. See, the Jewish leaders and the Gentile kings raged against Jesus, the quintessential king, the quintessential anointed one, and thus the early church rightly saw Jesus as the fulfillment of this psalm. So, rebellion against the Lord and His King would appear to be the norm, whether in David's day or in the life of Christ or even today. And so now what we need to do is turn our attention to the Lord's response to such treason. How does He respond to such rejection of His kingship and that of His anointed one? Look at verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Uh, David makes it painfully clear that the Lord looks down on this raging that's going on all around him. He looks down on all this plotting, this attempt to overthrow the king of the universe, and he laughs at them. He who dwells in the heavens laughs. It's as though little ants are running around shaking their little leg at you because you run your lawnmower too close to their perfectly manicured anthill, right? Now their sovereignty has been infringed. You ran your mower too close to them. And if you pulled out the microscope, you'd see their little fist shaking. Right? Well, likewise here... The Lord, the creator of all there is, including those who rage against him, he looks at the raging of the peoples and the kings, and he laughs at them. Oh, not because they're good comedians, but precisely because they are so ridiculous. The kings of the nations, thus the most important, most influential people of the world. These are your culture makers, your popular crowd, the big dogs, the head muckety-mucks. And they rage against God, and he laughs at them. He laughs. And with his laugh comes wrath. After laughing at them, he speaks to them in his wrath. And notice what he says. He says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
Now let's, let's make sure we're clear what's going on in the original context here. The Lord of heaven and earth responds to the raging of mankind by placing his king on Zion. The, the, the peoples and their kings, those around Israelites, so these are the Canaanites and the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Moabites, the Termites, the Hippopotamites, all of the ites, they are all ticked off that Israel's come into their land. And so in a fit of rage... They're in a fit of rage, and the Lord responds by setting up his king right in their face. Here's my king right in your land. And in view of salvation history, you could say that he did this to point out their judgment was was before them. He was pointing out they are rebellious sinners, and they and their false gods were absolutely impotent to take on the one true living God and his king, and thus they must either repent follow God's king, thus his God, or be destroyed. Now, it is important to remind ourselves why the Davidic king is so important at this point in salvation history, right? This is different than our culture. See, the Davidic dynasty was to be a reflection of the kingship of Yahweh. When you read the Scriptures, the kingdom of God is one of the overarching themes of the Bible, and the Davidic dynasty was to be a reflection of of this, right? That's why in texts like Deuteronomy 17, each Davidic king was supposed to have his own copy of the Torah, okay? Now, this is not the time like today when we all own our own Bibles. No, nobody had their own copy of the Torah. The copies, the scrolls were in the temple, okay? They were read by the priests, but each king was supposed to have his own copy, whether he copied it himself by hand or had it done for him, and he was supposed to study it diligently and to live and lead the people in light of it. See, Israel was a theocracy, We're a democracy. Israel was a theocracy. We we get in trouble when we start conflating America and Israel. No, 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 no. Israel was a theocracy. Yahweh was the ruler of Israel, and Yahweh's king, the Davidic king, ruled only as an expression of Yahweh's lordship. He set his Davidic king on Zion to bring all the nations into submission to him. And yet the nations scoffed at this. They didn't like it one bit. And this, this scoffing of the nations and God's making a mockery of the kings of the earth is wonderfully displayed in the story of David and Goliath. To be sure, a favorite in the children's Bibles, but one we so often miss the significance of that narrative. You really couldn't have a more perfect picture of the Lord's ridicule of the nations raging against Him. You got this powerful Philistine army and this nine-foot-tall giant who taunted the Lord's army. He raged against the Lord and his anointed. Enter stage right. Here comes David. David did not walk in thinking he was the toughest man on the planet. You mustn't forget that in the flow of that passage, David and Goliath happens right after Samuel anoints David as God's king. So David's clear on the promises of God. Read the narrative. He's clear that this nine-foot-tall Philistine was taunting the living God and that God himself was not going to stand for it. 
David even tells Goliath, he says, I'm going to kill you. And he tells him why. He gives him a purpose statement. And it's not, so everybody will think I'm awesome. He says, I'm going to kill you. So all the earth will know there is a God in Israel. And so little David, in comparison to the giant Goliath, lives out a real picture of God laughing at the vain raging of human kings. David, you know the story. He pulls out his sling and he slings a rock and sinks it right into the forehead of the big dumb giant who comes collapsing to the ground. He lops off his head and they rout the Philistine army all the while God is scoffing at their raging against him. The nations raged God laughed, and in his wrath, he confronts their raging by setting his king on Zion. Now, of course, this whole picture of the nations raging at God and God scoffing at them, and in response, setting his king on Zion points way beyond David or even Solomon. Again, it points us directly to the king, to King Jesus, who is the fulfillment of this psalm. See, in like manner to how the Lord shamed the nations through little King David against Goliath, Yahweh sets the fulfillment of the Davidic king on his throne, the Lord Jesus. And just think about how he did it. Not the way people would have expected at all. No, he absolutely scoffs at the rage of the nations. He absolutely confounds the wisdom of the wise in sending Jesus to be the king of the world and demonstrate his kingship in humility and death for his people. I mean, consider his birth. Not in a mansion, which you would expect for kings. Not even in a house or an inn. But how about a stinky old stable? And right there, God said, here's your king. Now, Jesus was clear on this. In John 18, Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds by saying, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Now, in saying that, he was not rejecting the fact that he was indeed the king of the Jews. His point was asserting that he's far more, right? He's asserting that he is the eternal king. He's king not only of the Jews, but he's king over all things, which is the very point Psalm 2 goes on to in verses 7 through 9. Look back at the text. Here we read. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What's going on here in the text is David is reflecting upon his installment as king. Now see, it's at that point when he became the quote-unquote son of God, right? The, 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 The Davidic king is by birth and more importantly by promise the son of God. And thus this today I have begotten you is that first instance Represented the day that he's installed as king where God's sonship was confirmed upon him. And so Yahweh goes on to say, ask of me. See, see, as the son of God, the Davidic king can ask for an extension of his kingdom because it's in line with God's universal rule. 
And moreover, the rule of God's son, the Davidic king, brings stability even if he has to use force, as you see in verse 9. The king might well have to break the rebellion of the nations by force, like you see in the lives of King David or King Solomon. Now, this is important because at this point in the psalm, everything we've been saying about the psalm pointing to Jesus is all the more clear here. This is begging for a king beyond David or any of his earthly descendants. And this is seen from the very outset of the Davidic dynasty. Take, for example, verse 8. Verse 8, we read, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, does that mean I will make the local nations, the Amalekites, the Canaanites, the Amorites, all the ites, I'll make them your inheritance? Well, of course it means that. But that's a small part of it. It's so far beyond that. And this was evident at the beginning of the monarchy. Turn with me to 2 Samuel 7. We've looked at this passage before as a church, but it's so worth looking at here. We need to tie a couple of passages because it really helps us understand this text, indeed our whole Bibles. 2 Samuel 7. This is that well-known passage where David's finally defeated virtually all of his enemies at the time, and now he wants to build God a house. That's sort of a play on words. He wants to build the temple. He says, I want to build a house. God says, no, you're not going to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. Play on words. I'm going to build you a dynasty. So starting in verse 12, I'm just going to read it and make a few comments as we go. We read, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. That word is seed. I will raise up your seed after you. That goes all the way back to the promise of Genesis 3. I'm going to raise up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, let me just say this. When you think of biblical typology, so often there are these types, whether it's a person, a place, or an important thing, and, and you see them spoken of, and you can see an initial fulfillment, but you can tell by the text that it's not the fullness of the fulfillment. And, and only in the progressive plan of redemption do you see, oh, here's another fulfillment and here's sort of the ultimate fulfillment. And you certainly have that kind of thing going on here. So some of this is going to be talking about Solomon, but so much of it is pointing so far beyond Solomon, right? So I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Solomon built the temple. But look what it says. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, if you take the Bible seriously, you know that there's a problem there. There's only two ways forever happens. One is there's just this ongoing succession of kings that goes from David to, you know, Solomon to Rehoboam and all, just never stops. Well, we know that didn't happen. You lose that line somewhere after Babylonian captivity, but you still have those in a line somewhere of David. And so the other way that it can happen is you have one who comes from the line of David who would be a king forever. Here we keep reading, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. Now that's key language. That's language that's picked up throughout the rest of the Old Testament. When he commits iniquity, again, Solomon when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of iron, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. 
before me, your throne shall be established forever. Uh, No surprise then that later biblical writers pick up on this. You don't have to turn there, but in Isaiah 9, again, a passage we've read recently over the Christmas season, Isaiah 9 comes and picks up on this exact kind of language. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given. Now, this is not any son. Listen to the language. Government will be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Okay, Mighty God. A son who is mighty God. What in the world? Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David. So now we've got Son, we've got the Davidic monarchy, on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So you can see through passages like this, and by the way, there's so many others, you can see how this messianic hope of a divine son was established in Israel. And this is why when you come to the New Testament, people are looking for the Messiah, right? The one from the Davidic line, the, the anointed one who would come and fulfill all these promises. And, and of course, we know this is all gloriously fulfilled in Christ, who is the eternal King of kings, the quintessential Son of God. And we see that right out of the blocks in the narratives of Jesus' birth. Again, we just covered this. Luke 1, angel Gabriel says to Mary that she's going to have a special son, right? There you read. The angel says to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Okay, simple enough at that point. Could have a son, could have a daughter. Here it's a son. But he elaborates. You shall call his name Jesus. You're going to call his name Yahweh saves. He will be great. He will be not just your son, he will be the son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Look what's happening. We're bringing these ideas together again. We're bringing the son together. We're bringing the throne of David together. And it says, and of his reign and over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom there shall be no end. So right at the beginning, right out of the blocks, not even born yet, And you already have the promise that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 and Isaiah 9 and all the other passages that are pointing in that direction. And you see this kind of language repeated even at his baptism, right? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Do you ever wonder, I've heard people ask questions like this, why didn't God just say something more clear? Like, this is Jesus, he's God in the flesh, he's going to be the king of kings, savior of the world, and something like that. Why didn't he say it that clear? He did. The problem is that our biblical illiteracy makes many of these very clear statements veiled. See, all of this is embedded in this son language connected to the Davidic monarchy language. And Jesus demonstrates he is the fulfillment. He is indeed the divine son of God. And he shows us that throughout his entire earthly ministry. But nowhere is that more clear than at the resurrection. And Acts 13, 26 through 37 drives this point home. Flip over there with me. Acts 13, verse 26 through 27. Yet another passage that quotes Psalm chapter 2. But this time, he's showing how the resurrection 
is what makes him the divine Son of God, or where that is conferred. Starting in verse 26, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to our fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. See, in order to fulfill the promise that his kingdom would last forever, the king had to be resurrected from the dead. And Paul makes it clear, Jesus was raised. The promises have been fulfilled. The Lord Jesus Christ came and was pronounced the Son of God at his birth and at his baptism, and he lived a perfect life demonstrating it. He died on the cross for sinners like you and me, and he was raised victoriously from the dead by God the Father, demonstrating his triumph over all things, including death, and demonstrating he and he alone is the perfect Son of God. Friends, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic Son. He's the fulfillment of the Davidic kingly line. Jesus is God's king who rules the everlasting kingdom. He's the one who would ultimately have all the nations as his inheritance. He's the one who rules over the entire world. If we go back to Psalm 2, he's also the one who will one day judge the whole world. And break those who are stiff-necked and refuse to submit to his authority with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a clay pot. Now, some of you might be saying, oh, hold up. I was tracking with you on this idea of Jesus as king and all of that, but Jesus as judge, dashing his enemies to pieces? That doesn't sound like the Jesus I know. Well, that might be true. It doesn't sound like the Jesus... You know, but the problem is, all too often, we have too tame a view of Jesus. All too often, we've embraced this Americanized view of Jesus that, quite frankly, sounds more like a 1960s hippie than the King of Kings that we read about in the Scriptures. And so, we consistently have to let the Bible show us who Jesus is, and the New Testament perfectly portrays Him fulfilling this role of judge that we see in Psalm 2.9. I mean, in John 5.22, Jesus himself says he's going to judge the whole world. He says, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son. Hold that thought. We'll come back to that at the end of Psalm 2. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Now, this, this is pictured really graphically in Revelation 19 that we don't have time to get into, but there you see Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, described as a warrior 
who, who judges and makes war on his enemies and tramples them under his feet, not least of which there in that text, the very kings of the earth, Psalm 2 fulfillment, even the devil himself. See, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the eternal Son, and He will judge those who reject Him. Now, to be sure, He came to bring salvation. Absolutely. Amen. And, and, and that's a beautiful and wonderful thing. But in the Scriptures, salvation is always salvation from judgment. We have a gospel in this land that tends to put salvation before us as salvation from a mediocre life to a great life. But in the Scriptures, it's always salvation from judgment. And those who reject the Son remain where they started, under judgment, and will experience the wrath of the King. On the other hand, those who bow down and worship this King are blessed for all eternity. And that's what the end of the psalm goes on to say. Look back at verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry with you and perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Here David is exhorting the nations to repent before it's too late. He exhorts them to be wise, and in the Scriptures, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Be wise, he says. Be warned. Serve the Lord by accepting His King. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice in the the Davidic King with trembling. He says, kiss the Son. And this is a picture of paying homage to the sun, right? You might think of the picture of people bowing down, kissing the ring. Whatever the picture is, it's clear. The point is, pay homage to the sun. And all are exhorted to do precisely that, to pay homage to Christ. This is done by trusting who He is, believing all He's done for sinners like us, submitting our lives to Him as King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's clear that those who do this are blessed for all eternity and those who don't suffer judgment. So let's end now on thinking about some implications of all of this. Earlier I said, as Christians, we are citizens of two kingdoms. And no matter what happens around us, one of those two kingdoms, just one of them, will never, ever be shaken in the least, no matter what things look like on the outside. Our king, King Jesus, is on his throne, and our kingdom will never be toppled. His kingdom will never even be shaken. Indeed, it will never even be threatened. Jesus is king, and our response to him is what's most important. So let me start with this. If you've never come to the point where you have bowed the knee to this king for that very first time, I would plead with you to do that today. King Jesus came, but like no other king, this king came to die for his people, 
this king came to make a people fit for his kingdom by living the life they couldn't live, going to the cross, bearing the punishment they deserved to bear, whereby if they would believe in him, all of their sin would be wiped away with the work he did on the cross and his perfect life credited to their accounts. Friend, if you don't know Christ, if you've never submitted to Christ, bow the knee even today. For believers, we must continue daily to bow the knee to King Jesus. We, we are to seek Him for how we are to live. We seek Him for how we are to process life. We seek Him for how we are to think about the secondary kingdom that He's called us to be a part of for a time. And see, as we watch people clamor for power, as we see ugly things, we understand where that comes from. The nations will always rage. And while we may have legitimate concerns for where we live, church, we do know from Scriptures that God's people have remained faithful in far, far worse. I think of Habakkuk standing there as the Babylonian empire is outside the gates, and he knows it's just a matter of time before they're inside the gates. I think of Daniel and his faithfulness after the Babylonians came in the gates, chained him up and drug him to another land. And just so we're clear, I'm not sounding the alarm, I'm not saying that's coming, I'm not a prophet, and if I claim to be, I hope you would fire me. My point is this, our world, our kingdom, is not falling apart. Jesus is on his throne. And while we can love this country, and I, I do, I consider myself a patriot, while we can love this country, our ultimate allegiance is to another land, and most certainly to another king, a king who is good, a king who is always good, in a land that is glorious, that will never be invaded or shaken. So we can rest assured, this kingdom is secure. And no matter what level of involvement you choose to have in your earthly kingdom, and I think the Scriptures give us a lot of freedom here. Christians have historically had all sorts of differing views on level of involvement, politics and in other things, and it's an area where we must grant each other freedom of conscience. But with that said... Our involvement in Christ's kingdom is not optional. It is not up for debate. You see, when we understand texts like this, we understand there is a priority of kingdoms. In church, we live first and foremost for our eternal king. That means his agenda is our highest agenda. His mission is our mission. His mission of bringing sinners into the kingdom. <laughs> That's our mission. You want to know what to do in times like this? Preach the gospel. His battle, which is not against flesh and blood, is our battle. And to the extent that our earthly king or kingdom gets us sidetracked here, where it or him becomes our priority, our main priority, we need to repent. Go back to the Daniel series. 
Kings and kingdoms come and go. Babylonians, the greatest world power ever known. They're gone. Medo-Persians, the new world power. They're the best. Nobody will ever touch the Medo. Gone. The Greeks, this is the world power they're going to be here for. Gone. Roman Empire, gone. American Empire, I don't know. I do know this. Christ's kingdom will never give way to another kingdom. In fact, in God's sovereign time, we know that he will once and for all do away with all human kingdoms, and there will only be the kingdom, the kingdom of God. So, love for country, yes. I think so. I think it's being a good, faithful, dual citizen. This is where God sovereignly placed us. We want to be faithful here. Pray for our country? Absolutely. Pray for our leaders? You bet. Let's pray for Joe Biden and his new administration. But may we live, first and foremost, for Christ and His kingdom as our highest allegiance. And I would submit to you, church, that when we do that, that will guide us in some of the nuances of how we should live in the here and now. We are members of two kingdoms, but Christ is our highest allegiance. His kingdom is forever. Let's rejoice in that, focus on that, live for that. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you once again for how your word speaks to us, meets us where we are, challenges us, encourages us, builds us up, lowers us down when need be. Father, I thank you for this reminder that your kingdom will never, ever be thwarted. You will reign forever and ever. Amen.